This is lesson 70. We're in the middle of Yeshua's woes that he pronounced over the Pharisees in chapter 23. And we took a couple weeks off looking at giving. And uh, so I want to begin with a bit of a review so that we kind of keep everything together and, and on track. So we're going to begin with verse 1 and read this. Then Yeshua said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide, their tassels on their garments long. They love places of honor at banquets. The most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi for you only have one master and you are all brothers. And don't call anyone on earth father for you have one father, he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher for you have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so what I want you to see here is that in these first 12 verses, we get the real purpose for Yeshua beginning to pronounce the woes that he's going to pronounce. Because many of Israel's teachers had turned their position as teachers and their leading and the following of Torah into positions of their own self-aggrandizement. They were doing hypocritical things to set themselves apart from the people, above the people. Things that made them appear to be righteous. And because they appeared to be so pious and so knowledgeable about the kingdom of God, they were demanding that men call them rabbi, teacher, father, when they addressed them. In essence, they were making disciples of themselves rather than making disciples or followers of God. And it was because of this that he pronounces these woes upon the Pharisees. The woes shed light, further light on their hypocrisy. They said they were teachers and keepers of the law, but they were mere actors in their observance. They had missed the heart of God, and it had left their heart full of uncleanness. Now, as I said it's before, it's important to remember that this is not a polemic so much against the Pharisees as a whole or of the people of Israel as the church has taken this over the centuries. But as we read this, we have to remember that it is the behaviors that Yeshua is condemning. Yeshua doesn't hate sinners, but he hates their behavior. Now I say that because we find these behaviors in all men. We should be looking at these behaviors. We all seek to rise above everyone else around us. We have ministers of the good news to this very day whose own names and own fame have risen to a level that the Messiah is lost in the din of these preachers' names and fame. These Pharisees were looking to be fathers of the people and yet they were to teach of the Father in heaven. They were to teach of the ways of the Father and not of their own ways. They were to teach men to follow God from the heart, not by traditions that their fathers had begun and they have continued to develop. You're not going to find God in tradition. You're going to find God in relationship. And again, we see this today. There's nothing new under the sun. The church 
We followed in the footsteps of the fathers of the church. The church fathers. They wanted to be called father too. No one uh, criticizes them for that, right? But call yourself rabbi and watch out. The Bible is clear. The heavenly father was clear in his words. Keep the seventh day a Sabbath of rest, a sacred assembly. Yet we follow the church fathers instead of God. We develop new doctrines to ensure that the people will continue to worship on the first day, to lay aside any dissension they might have. And so understand, it's not the terms rabbi, teacher, or father that Yeshua is contending with. It's not the Pharisees or the people of Israel that Yeshua is contending with. But it's the condition of men's hearts, the behavior that Yeshua contends with and he condemns. It's also important to note that not all Pharisees were of this same hypocrisy. Because let's be real, many loved God deeply. And we're going to read of one of them in a moment. We're going to read about him in a moment. But another good example was Shaul. Shaul deeply loved God. And even when he was persecuting the early church, he did those things because he sincerely thought that the followers of Yeshua were leading men away from God. He was sincere. And then when confronted with his errand, he turned sharply in a new direction because he had so much love for God. So please understand, this is not a polemic against the Pharisees or all the Jewish people, but it's Yeshua telling us something much deeper about ourselves. He's telling us how men go astray. He's telling us the condition of the hearts of those who seemingly look pious and religious. And so he continues... In verse 13, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut up the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You see, he makes no bones about what this passage is about. He calls them hypocrites in the very first woe, and it won't be the last time. He tells us the result of this self-aggrandizement and the poor teaching was that while it made them look very pious to other men, that same teaching had shut the doors of the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, to include their own. Think about it. If we look back at this text, in a few days, we're going to see just how far some of these men are willing to go to protect their position in life. They made for themselves, the the position that they had made for themselves. The Sanhedrin will arrest Yeshua. They're going to see to it that he's put to death because he's a threat to their way of life and their position. A few weeks ago, we looked at the words of Nicodemus. Remember, I I made a point of telling you that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. It was recorded in John, and he says to Yeshua, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Yeshua at night and said, Rabbi, We know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Here's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. He's a Pharisee and he says, We know, we, not me, we know you are a teacher from God. The we there can only mean the rest of the Sanhedrin. They knew by the miracles he was doing. 
They knew, but they didn't care that Yeshua was a man sent from God. No, they only cared that he was a threat to their position. Here's the king of the kingdom, and they're going to put him to death. They were not making men followers of God and of God's Messiah, but they were making them followers of themselves and their fathers. And by doing this, they were leading men astray away from the kingdom. They were the ones, the very ones who should have recognized the king because of their knowledge of Torah and the prophets. They should have recognized the king. And here Nicodemus tells us that they did see him at least as a teacher of a man sent from God. But instead of following the teachings of the man sent from God, they continued in their own teachings and position. And to that end, they'll even put him to death. Listen to what he says next. Verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as you are. They travel over land and sea to make a disciple of themselves. And in the end, they make him twice as much of a son of hell as they are. Shaul will certainly have a problem with this. The Pharisees were much more evangelistic then than, 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 than the rabbis of today are. Much more outreaching. They went out to the nations to make disciples, to make converts. But instead of making disciples of God, they made disciples of themselves. Instead of teaching, give your heart, your soul, and your mind to God. Instead of leading men to Messiah, the Messiah that was foretold in scriptures, they were teaching them to be followers of men. Instead of teaching them to be a part of kingdom, they taught, you need to become part of our nation, our ethnicity. Instead of being members of the kingdom and followers of God, they were teaching men to be Jewish and followers of the fathers of the Jewish people. Instead of giving their hearts to God, they taught, learn this, do this, circumcise that, and you'll be part of our nation. And then you'll have a place in the kingdom of heaven because as scripture says, all Israel is righteous. That was their thinking. Had they truly taught and understood scripture, they would have and should have known that Yeshua was the only way to the kingdom. And following Yeshua is the only way to the world to come. Yeshua told us that in John 14. He says, Yeshua answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. There's only one way to the kingdom. And by teaching men to become part of the nation of Israel through a process, through this process that they had developed, you'll have a, they tell them, you, because of this process, you'll have a place in the world to come. Well, that's leading men astray. That's a lie. When Gentiles had done everything required by these men and thinking they were now assured a place in the world to come, the effect was that they ended their search. These poor Gentiles through the, thought the Pharisees were leading them to the kingdom of heaven when in truth their teachers did not know the way themselves. And so in John, in, in, in John chapter 6, Yeshua says this. Yeshua said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God 
is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Yeshua says something that will be the platform of Shaul's message to the nations. It's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. In other words, it's not Moses who will lead you to life and the sustenance of the kingdom. But those things come not from Moses, but they come from the Father. And the bread that is truly the bread of life is Messiah Yeshua who came from the Father with words of life, truth, and the way. Moses is not the one who will lead you to the kingdom. It is Yeshua who will lead you, and it is Yeshua who will sustain you. Well, sadly, the teachers of Israel aren't even teaching these poor Gentiles to follow Moses. They're actually teaching them to follow themselves, to follow them. And so he continues in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by the oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Now we skipped over this section on vows and maybe I'll come back to it next week. But in essence, I want you to know what Yeshua is saying. Is that they had made up formulas for making vows that were so complex and so full of escape clauses that they really weren't vows at all. It were like contracts with so much fine print, they really didn't bind themselves to anything. Didn't bind them to do anything. So and then in verse 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more weighty matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guide, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And we covered this well enough in the lessons on giving, but in essence, he's saying they were meticulous in their observance, even to tithing on things that didn't even need to be tithed upon. But they had forgotten the purpose of the tithe which was to show the mercy and the faithfulness and the kindness of God. God has Israel bring the tithe to care for those who didn't have, the widows, the orphans, the stranger, to support the priesthood so that the worship of God could continue. And now we come to where we left off. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean as well. One of the areas that Yeshua takes particular exception to as we read the Gospels, uh, he takes exception with the Pharisees over and over with the purity laws. You know, I've taught on this before, but if you look at the Mishnah, which is the additions that the rabbis have added and, and the method they prescribe for keeping the law, and the Mishnah admittedly was written much later than the first century. It was written in the second century. But it's still a record of first century thought and the emphasis of the Pharisees and the teachings of the Pharisees in the first century. 
Well, if you look at this document, you're going to find that no other topic gets more attention than that of ritual purity. By far, ritual purity is the number one topic of the Mishnah. And we see Yeshua address it with his disciples. When they eat without ceremonially washing his hand, their hands, he, he rebukes the Pharisees. Well, what Yeshua is saying here is that these laws of the Pharisees focused on outward appearance, but neglected the inward condition, the heart. I want to let you all in on a major little secret here of the Bible. This is, this is one of the mysteries of the Bible. I really do believe it's a mystery because so few people understand it. It must be a mystery, right? That is this. The Torah is not meant for outward appearance, but the Torah is a document that's intended for you to use it to look inward at yourself. And then once you fix the inward, it will show on the outward. It's supposed to take you on an inward search to become a member of God's kingdom. Is the outward important? Well, yes, it is if you fix the inward. Because if you haven't fixed the inward and you're doing things outwardly, you're like one of these Pharisees Yeshua is addressing. Another thing closely related, many, many times people learn Torah and the teachings of the rabbis and then they run out and they apply them to everyone they know without looking first at the condition of their own hearts. You see, when the Torah says honor your father and your mother, it's not for you to run around and check how everyone else is treating their father and their mother. The command is there for you to do a hard evaluation on the level of respect that you show your mother and your father. When the Torah says you shall not eat unclean animals, it's not for you to go to your neighbor's house and search his cupboards and watch him prepare his meals to make sure there's no unclean thing in his soup. The instruction is meant for you to stop three times a day and think about what's going into your mouth. And yes, it's symbolic of you stopping and thinking about what's going in your heart all day long as well. Understand, I want you to, some people use the Torah as a club. They go out and club their neighbors with it. Well, I want you to understand the Torah is a club. But it's not a club for you to use to go out and correct your neighbor. The Torah instructions of God, the written instructions of God, they're written down so that you can read them and the Spirit of God can help you search your own heart and then you use that club on your own flesh to beat it into submission to God's Word. Well, Yeshua says here that these men were doing things that made them look good to others, but they had forgotten to do the inward change. They had changed their appearance, but they hadn't changed their heart. Now, I know that many in the church have read this, and they miss the boat, thinking, oh, this is the Pharisees. This is a condemnation of the Pharisees, not us. But Yeshua is not addressing the people, not addressing people here. He's addressing behavior. We all do these things that make us look good, when perhaps we're not so good. We all do things when we're alone that we wouldn't do elsewhere because we wouldn't want anybody to see. But guess what? There's somebody who sees. He sees everything. What does that tell you about how you fear God? Do you fear God or do you fear men? 
We all wear masks at times. But understand, that's hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is something that Yeshua takes seriously. He wants our hearts, our inward, our hearts, and our outward self to be exactly the same. Good on the outside, acting pious on the outside, all the while having corrupt things in your heart doesn't cut it. He shows us this in the tabernacle and the temple. We just went through all the instructions for the tabernacle and the temple. Remember, at the heart of the temple, at the heart of the tabernacle was one piece of furniture. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark, we could say, the chest, because it was a chest, it was a vessel of the covenant. It carried the agreement between God and his people. It carried the tablets of the law. Well, if you look at the construction of the ark, you're going to find something really curious. You're going to find that it was actually three boxes. An outer box that, of course, was gold. An inner box of acacia wood. And finally, another box on the very inside, gold again. In other words, it was the same inside and out. The corruptible acacia wood was covered with incorruptible gold inside and out. And within this box, within this vessel, was his word, his Torah, his agreement with his people. The tablets of the law. The very tablets on which were written the Torah to include the instructions for the box itself. If you wanted to know how the box was made, you had to open up the box and look at the Torah. Right? Listen to what Exodus 25.10 says. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Now the rabbis, they noted some things about the construction of the ark, which I want to read. This is from Yoma 72b. It says, within and without, you shall overlay it. Speaking of the Ark of the Covenant, Rabbah said, any scholar whose inside is not like his outside is no scholar. Abaya said, woe to the enemies of the scholars who occupy themselves with Torah and have no fear of heaven. You see, this is something that we taught on in the temple study. We've taught on it before, but let's just do a quick review. You see, friends, there is no Ark of the Covenant. And people ask me, well, where is the Ark of the Covenant? Will it ever be found? I said, no, it'll never be found. That's what Jeremiah says. In the kingdom, it will never come to mind again. Just like there's no temple any longer. But now we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, right? Well, let me just tell you, so too are we the Ark of the Covenant. We're to carry God's word out to the world. And just as the ark contained a jar of manna, we have the bread of life contained within us. We have the true bread of life, the Messiah Yeshua. He lives within us. The word of God made flesh indwelling us. And so understand that we, like the ark, are to be the same inside and out. We're not to be one thing on the outside and another on the inside. And also, just as the instruction for the construction of the ark was inside was in the Torah and inside the ark, so too the Torah, the word of God, is within our hearts. And that living word is a molder of ourselves. 
He has the instruction for our lives. It's within us. The instruction for our construction. We're to be same inside and out. We're to display the kingdom of God in everything that we do. And the rabbis saw this as well. I found this quote in Samuel Locke's commentary on the New Testament. It's a great book if you can get one. It says this, Rabban Gamaliel had issued a proclamation saying, no disciple whose character inside does not correspond to his exterior outside may enter the Beit HaMidrash, the house of study. And so Gamaliel, in essence, is saying that a disciple has to be the same inside and outside. And that's the essence of what Yeshua is saying. He's saying that these men aren't. In other words, Gamaliel wouldn't have let them into the house of study. Now, I said at the start that the behavior of these men is what is called into question. He wants our hearts to line up with our actions. In the next passage, he makes no bones about it, as he again calls them hypocrites. Verse 27 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He tells them flat out that they're hypocrites and he accuses them of being like whitewashed tombs, or we could say beautified tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but still full of the same uncleanness inside. And then he says, you appear to people as righteous, but inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And let me say, if you really want to get the full understanding here, you need to look up the words that he uses here. Meaning means righteous, observing divine laws, keeping the commands of God. Do you want to be righteous in your behavior? Oh, well, keep the commands of God. Pretty easy, right? But he says to these men, you appear to be keeping the commands of God. You appear to be righteous. You appear to be Torah observant. You appear to be following the commands of God. And the key word is appear. He's saying that the traditions, the actions of the Pharisees appear to be keeping the commands of God. But their observance isn't from the heart. Their observance is done for men to see. Like a tomb that's been whitewashed. It's beautified solely for men to see, all the while knowing that inside it contains uncleanness. It was done to make a place of ritual impurity, this place of uncleanness, look beautiful. It was made beautiful to attract men's eyes and admiration. And he says, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy. And we need to look at what that means. Look at what it means, the word. It means acting under a feigned part. In other words, you appear to be righteous, but you're playing a role. You're acting out. A script that was written by your fathers. But it's not what you are. You're not righteous. You pretend to be pious. You pretend to be a Torah keeper and an observer of God's holy Torah, but inside your heart is unclean. It's a deception. And he says, you're full of wickedness. Wickedness. 
Look at the Greek word here. It means the condition of without law, contempt and violation of law, of the law. He says, in truth, in your heart, you are without Torah. A Torah violator. You know, we read this as Christians and we don't look up the words. We kind of just read the Bible, you know, and I guess that's okay, but if you really want to understand it, you need to dig a little deeper. But he's, we read this as Christians and we say, oh, how terrible, these Pharisees are full of wickedness. And what comes to our mind is our own idea of wickedness. Whatever that may be, because each person's idea of wickedness is probably different. But wickedness, by definition, is Torah violations. Violations of God's Torah. And so we Christians, we sit in our condemnation of these men and also in our own Torah violations. It's like the pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? I said earlier that the Torah is a document meant to shine light on your heart. It's not a spotlight for you to go out and shine it into the lives of others. The Torah, if properly used and focused on your life, on your heart, can allow you to live a righteous life. It can't make you righteous, only Yeshua can do that. But it can, if you are led by the Spirit of God, give you what you need to go away from that forgiveness Yeshua secured for you and live a life that's righteous and representative of the kingdom of heaven. Should you stumble along the way? Or we could say, should you sin along the way? And the Torah is the focus and focused on your life? then you'll see your error and the Torah through Yeshua provides a way for you to get up, start over down that path of Torah observance again. It's called repentance. Repent, turn, go a new direction. The problem comes when you think you can do no wrong. And you focus that light of Torah on others. You see, if you do that, you've already become a Torah violator. You've already missed the purpose of the Torah. The Torah isn't to go shine on everybody else. This is a tremendous problem in our movement, in the messianic movement of today, and those coming into our movement. We immediately pick up that Torah and start applying it to everyone else. You see, there's something that's even worse than being a hypocrite. Because you can see that Yeshua doesn't really like hypocrites. But there's something that I'm sure he would agree that's worse than a hypocrite. You see, because a hypocrite is one whose actions are good and pious, but their heart doesn't line up with those actions. What is worse is one whose actions aren't righteous and don't even appear to others as righteous. And yet they're in denial that they're in sin at all and they think they're righteous. A hypocrite can be made to see his error. He can be called out on his hypocrisy. If called out, he can see his actions aren't keeping with Torah, but, and while, and let me say, while we don't get the response of the Pharisees here, I'm sure that what Yeshua said caused them pause, made them take a look at themselves. But one who lives in error and calls it truth, that's the one who's truly lost. 
And some of those are sitting in pews all over the world. He goes through life calling others wicked and never looks at himself. If you will not look at yourself, if you will not acknowledge the sin in your life, or worse, if you call your sin righteous, I'm going to tell you there is no hope for you. You see, that is hypocrisy taken to its final conclusion. If confronted with your error, you refuse to look at it, thinking you're righteous, you are eternally lost. Something I learned years ago, you know, there are people, there are some people that are not capable of looking at anything they do as wrong. Everything they do is right. And any trouble that comes into their life is someone else's fault and someone else's problem. You did this to me. I didn't do this to me. You did this to me. Now, when I, when I see that, I got to tell you, I'm truly fearful for that person. The whole of the good news, the whole of being admitted into the kingdom and being forgiven by Yeshua requires that you look at what you've done in your life and repent, realizing that it was wrong, realizing that it was wicked, and turn from those things and live differently. Well, for someone who's incapable or unwilling of looking at their own error, how can this be done? How can it be? If their heart is so hard that they think they do no wrong, but that all the evil things in their lives are really someone else's doing, and if that weren't enough, calling those things righteous, what real hope is there for that person? How is it that they could have ever received Yeshua in the first place? How is it that they could have ever been saved? It's a mystery, isn't it? Well, in the same way, even if you did accept Yeshua at one time, if you're at that place in your life that you don't look at yourself and you blame everything else for every, every, everyone else for everything wrong in your life, you've stopped growing in Yeshua as well. And you've stopped growing as a member of the kingdom. Because the Torah is a document meant for you to shine on your own heart. Amen? That's